Welcome to Daily Airs. You are listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. There's something new on Airs LA every day. I'm your host, Annette Bro, and every Monday, I review varying events that happen during This Week in History, brought to you from A&E Networks, The History Channel, and History.com. June 5. On this date in history, in the year 1956, Elvis rocks the Milton Berle Show. By the end of 1955, Elvis Presley had nearly 18 months of nonstop touring behind him and two dozen singles already under his belt, though his only hits were on the country and western charts. He was a hard-working and hard-to-categorize up-and-comer, but the next six months would make him a superstar. It was his debut single on RCA Victor, his new label, which propelled Elvis to the top of the pop charts. But if Heartbreak Hotel is what made him the king of the radio and record stores during the spring of 1956, it was television that truly made him the king of rock and roll. And if any one moment might be called his coronation, it was his appearance on The Milton Berle Show on June 5, 1956, when he set his guitar aside and put every part of his being into a blistering, scandalous performance of Hound Dog. This was not Presley's first television appearance, nor even his first appearance on Milton Berle. Between January and March 1956, Elvis made six appearances on Tommy and Jimmy Dorsey's stage show, and on April 3, he appeared for the first time with Uncle Milty. But every one of those appearances featured Elvis either in close-up singing a slow ballad or full body with his movements somewhat restricted by the acoustic guitar he was playing. It was on his second Milton Berle show appearance that he put the guitar aside and America witnessed for the very first time the 21-year-old Elvis Presley from head to toe gyrating his soon-to-be-famous or infamous pelvis. Reaction to Elvis's performance in the mainstream media was almost uniformly negative. Mr. Presley has no discernible singing ability for the ear. He is an unutterable bore, wrote critic Jack Gould in the next day's New York Times. His one specialty is an accented movement of the body that heretofore has been primarily identified with the repertoire of the blonde bombshells of the burlesque runway. The gyration never had anything to do with the world of pop music and still doesn't. In the New York Daily News, Ben Gross described Presley's performance as tinged with a kind of animalism that should be confined to dives and bordellos. While the New York Journal American's Jack O'Brien said that Elvis makes up for vocal shortcomings with the weirdest and plainly suggestive animation short of an aborigines mating dance. Meanwhile, the Catholic Weekly America got right to the point in its headline, Beware of Elvis Presley. June 6. On this date in history, in the year 1933, the first drive-in movie theater opens. Eager motorists park their automobiles on the grounds of Camden Drive-In, the first ever drive-in movie theater, located on Admiral Wilson Boulevard in Pensuhocken, New Jersey. Park-in theaters, the term drive-in, came to be widely used only later 
was the brainchild of Richard Hollingshead, a movie fan and a sales manager at his father's company, Wiz Auto Products in Camden. Reportedly inspired by his mother's struggle to sit comfortably in traditional movie theater seats, Hollingshead came up with the idea of an open-air theater where patrons watched movies in the comfort of their own automobiles. He experimented in the driveway of his own house with different projection and sound techniques, mounting a 1928 Kodak projector on the hood of his car, pinning a screen to some trees and placing radio behind the screen for sound. He also tested ways to guard against rain and other inclement weather and devised the ideal spacing arrangement for a number of cars so that all would have a view of the screen. The young entrepreneur received a patent for the concept in May of 1933 and opened Park Inn Theaters, Inc. less than a month later with an initial investment of $30,000. Advertising it as entertainment for the whole family, Hollingshead charged 25 cents per car and 25 cents per person, with no group paying more than $1. The idea caught on, and after Hollingshead's patent was overturned in 1949, drive-in theaters began popping up all over the country. One of the largest was the all-weather drive-in of Copiag, New York, which featured parking spaces for 2,500 cars, a kid's playground, and a full-service restaurant on a 28-acre lot. Drive-in theaters showed mostly B-movies, that is, not Hollywood's finest fare, but some theaters featured the same movies that played in regular theaters. The initially poor sound quality, Hollingshead had mounted three speakers manufactured by RCA Victor near the screen, improved, and later technology made it possible for each car to play the movie's soundtrack through its FM radio. The popularity of the drive-in spiked after World War II, and reached its heyday in the late 1950s to mid-1960s, with some 5,000 theaters across the country. Drive-ins became an icon of American culture, and a typical weekend destination, not just for parents and children, but also for teenage couples seeking some privacy. Since then, however, the rising price of real estate, especially in suburban areas, combined with the growing numbers of walk-in theaters and the rise of video rentals, curbed the growth of the drive-in industry. Today, fewer than 500 drive-in theaters survive in the United States. June 7. On this day in history, in the year 1962, Switzerland welcomes the first drive-through bank. The banking institution Credit Suisse opens the first drive-through bank in Switzerland at St. Peter Strauss 17 Parade Square in downtown Zurich. Like many developments in automotive culture, including drive-through restaurants and drive-in movies, drive-through banking has its origins in the United States. Some sources say that Hillcrest State Bank opened the first drive-through bank in Dallas, Texas in 1938. Others claim the honor belongs to the Exchange National Bank of Chicago in 1946. Regardless of when it exactly began, the trend didn't reach its height until the car-crazy era of the late 1950s and early 1960s. Around that time, California-based Wells Fargo Bank introduced the TV Auto Banker service, where an image of the teller was broadcast to the customer in their car on a special closed-circuit television. Deposits, withdrawals, and other transactions were completed using an underground pneumatic tube that whisked money and paperwork between the car and the teller station. 
The Credit Suisse branch that opened in Zurich in 1962 featured eight glass pavilions, seven outfitted for left-hand drive cars, and one for vehicles with right-hand drive cars, such as those used in the United Kingdom and Ireland. Upon the opening of the large and modern facility, Zurich daily newspaper Neue Zuische Zeitung advised motorists on how to enter the drive through portion. At the entrance to the bank, approaching cars trigger a sensor on the ground, activating a light trail that directs the driver to the next available counter. The Parada Plots drive through was well received by the press, and in its first year of operation, the bank handled around 20,000 customers. By the 1970s, however, the automobile's popularity had led to a major traffic problem in downtown Zurich, and fewer drivers opted to stop to do their banking from their cars. After years without a profit, Credit Suisse closed the drive through in 1983. In the United States, by contrast, drive through banking never lost its popularity. Nearly all major banks nationwide offer some type of drive through option, from regular teller service to 24-hour automated teller machines, ATMs. In recent years, drive through banking reached the previously untapped Asian market. Citibank opened China's first drive through ATM at the Upper East Side Central Plaza in Beijing in August 2007. June 8. On this date in history, in the year 1949, George Orwell's 1984 is published. George Orwell's novel of a dystopian future, 1984, is published on June 8, 1949. The novel's all-seeing leader, known as Big Brother, becomes a universal symbol for intrusive government and oppressive bureaucracy. George Orwell was the nom de plume of Eric Blair, who was born in India. The son of a British civil servant, Orwell attended school in London and won a scholarship to the elite prep school, Eton, where most students came from wealthy, upper-class backgrounds, unlike Orwell. Rather than going to college like most of his classmates, Orwell joined the Indian Imperial Police and went to work in Burma in 1922. During his five years there, he developed a severe sense of class guilt. Finally, in 1927, he chose not to return to Burma while on holiday in England. Orwell, choosing to immerse himself in the experiences of the urban poor, went to Paris, where he worked menial jobs and later spent time in England as a tramp. He wrote Down and Out in Paris and London in 1933, based on his observation of the poorer classes, and in 1937, The Road to Wigan Pier, which documented the life of the unemployed in northern England. Meanwhile, he had published his first novel, Burmese Days, in 1934. Orwell became increasingly left-wing in his views, although he never committed himself to any specific political party. He went to Spain during the Spanish Civil War to fight with the Republicans, but later fled as communism gained an upper hand in the struggle on the left. His barnyard fable, Animal Farm in 1945, shows how the noble ideals of egalitarian economies can easily be distorted. The book brought him the first taste of critical and financial success. Orwell's last novel, 1984, brought him lasting fame with his grim vision of a future where all citizens are watched constantly and language is twisted to aid in oppression. Orwell died of tuberculosis in 1950. June 9. On this date in history and the year 1954, have you no sense of decency? 
Senator Joseph McCarthy is asked in a hearing. In a dramatic confrontation, Joseph Welsh, special counsel for the U.S. Army, lashes out at Senator Joseph McCarthy during hearings on whether communism has infiltrated the U.S. armed forces. Welch's verbal assault marked the end of McCarthy's power during the anti-communist hysteria of the Red Scare in America. Senator McCarthy, a Republican from Wisconsin, experienced a meteoric rise to fame and power in the U.S. Senate when he charged in February 1950 that hundreds of known communists were in the Department of State. In the years that followed, McCarthy became the acknowledged leader of the so-called Red Scare, a time when millions of Americans became convinced that communists had infiltrated every aspect of American life. Behind closed-door hearings, McCarthy bullied, lied, and smeared his way to power, destroying many careers and lives in the process. Prior to 1953, the Republican Party tolerated his antics because his attacks were directed against the Democratic administration of Harry S. Truman. When Republican Dwight D. Eisenhower entered the White House in 1953, however, McCarthy's recklessness and increasingly erratic behavior became unacceptable, and the senator saw his clout slowly ebbing away. In a last-ditch effort to revitalize his anti-communist crusade, McCarthy made a crucial mistake. He charged in early 1954 that the U.S. Army was soft on communism. As chairman of the Senate Government Operations Committee, McCarthy opened hearings into the Army. Joseph N. Welch, a soft-spoken lawyer with an incisive wit and intelligence, represented the Army. During the course of weeks of hearings, Welch blunted every one of McCarthy's charges. The senator, in turn, became increasingly enraged, bellowing, point of order, point of order, screaming at witnesses, and declaring that the one highly decorated general was a disgrace to his uniform. On June 9, 1954, McCarthy again became agitated at Welch's steady destruction of each of his arguments and witnesses. In response, McCarthy charged that Frederick G. Fisher, a young associate in Welch's law firm, had been a longtime member of an organization that was a legal arm of the Communist Party. Welch was stunned. As he struggled to maintain his composure, he looked at McCarthy and declared, Until this moment, Senator, I think I never really gauged your cruelty and your recklessness. It was then McCarthy's turn to be stunned into silence as Welch asked, Have you no sense of decency, sir, at long last? The audience of citizens and newspaper and television reporters burst into wild applause. Just a week later, the hearings into the Army came to a close. McCarthy, exposed as a reckless bully, was officially condemned by the U.S. Senate for contempt against his colleagues in December 1954. During the next two and a half years, McCarthy spiraled into alcoholism. Still in office, he died in 1957. June 10. On this date in history, in the year 2002, a donut truck thief is arrested. Clint Messina, 21, of Lacombe, Louisiana, is arrested and charged in the attempted murder of a police officer after driving into a patrol car while attempting to flee from sheriff's deputies. Soon after, police discovered that he was already a wanted man. At about 3.30 a.m. on March 27, Messina and an associate, Rose Houck, 31, 
stole a Krispy Kreme donuts delivery truck in Slidell, Louisiana. The Krispy Kreme delivery man had left the engine of a truck running and its rear doors open while he went into a convenience store to make a delivery. Upon returning to find the truck and the hundreds of donuts inside missing, the delivery man called police, who pursued and caught up to the vehicle. Messina and Hauk then led police on a 15-mile chase, leaving a trail of donuts behind them as they fled. The incident was the subject of nationwide media attention and, as it involved cops and donuts, kept late-night comedians busy for several days. Eventually, Messina and Hauk abandoned the vehicle and attempted to get away on foot. Hauk didn't make it and was arrested, but Messina, who was driving, managed to escape. Both were eventually charged with auto theft and resisting arrest by flight. Afterwards, Lieutenant Bob Callahan of the Slidell Police joked, We're glad he's off the streets, but this unfortunately means we're going to have to stop stalking out all the local donut shops looking for him. On a more serious note, he added, We all had a lot of fun with the donut truck incident, but this is a sobering reminder that police officers put their lives on the line whenever they initiate a pursuit. June 11. On this date in history, in the year 1982, E.T., the extraterrestrial, is released. Then, 34-year-old director Steven Spielberg reportedly drew on his own experiences as an unusually imaginative, often lonely child of divorce for his science fiction classic, E.T., the extraterrestrial, which is released on June 11, 1982. For Spielberg, E.T. marked a return to territory he had first visited with the classic Close Encounters of the Third Kind in 1977, in which Richard Dreyfus plays a man who comes face-to-face -face with a fearsome alien force that eventually proves to be human-friendly. With E.T., Spielberg would create an even more appealing vision of alien life in the form of a diminutive creature with wrinkled skin and a glowing belly. Spielberg worked closely with the screenwriter Melissa Matheson, future wife of Harrison Ford, the star of Spielberg's Indiana Jones films, to capture on film the story of the wise, kind, and cuddly alien botanist who is stranded on Earth and needs the help of a sensitive little boy, Elliot, to get back home. Elliot and his siblings, played by Robert McNaughton, and a seven-year-old Drew Barrymore hide E.T. as the alien dubs himself in a closet to keep him out of sight from prying adults, including their mother, who is distracted by her painful separation from her husband. Before long, a special link develops between E.T. and Elliot, who will eventually risk his own safety to return E.T. to his planet. From the time E.T. had its first showing on closing night in 1982 Cannes Film Festival, the film's buzz was overwhelmingly positive. Richard Corliss raved in Time magazine. E.T. is a perfectly poised mixture of sweet comedy and ten-speed melodrama of death and resurrection of a friendship so pure and powerful it seems like an idealized love. Time also included the fictional alien in its list of candidates for Man of the Year, the first film character to receive that honor. Nominated in nine categories at the 1983 Academy Awards, including Best Picture and Best Director, the film won four Oscars for Best Sound Effects, Editing, Best Visual Effects, Best Original Score, and Best Sound. 
E.T. had stupendous success at the box office, eventually raking in some $435 million. It was released in 1985, and a special 20th anniversary edition was issued in 2002. And that wraps up our This Week in History podcast for June 5 through June 11. If you'd like to learn more about Airs LA, including streaming audio, podcasts, and more, we invite you to connect or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook social media platforms. This podcast is for the sole use of our blind and print-impaired audience. Any unauthorized use is prohibited. I'm Annette Rowe, and I'll return next week to bring you more events that happen during Next Week in History. Until then, thanks for listening.